guys, you're listening to Unlimited Hangout, and I'm your host, Whitney Webb. Today we're going to be going over some recent events that are not getting enough media coverage, but definitely deserve more, like this past week's recent hack of a major hospital network in 14 states having 911 call center outages all at the same time. We'll also be touching on the apparent push to set the stage for 2020's so-called darkest winter, as the claims that the eventual sputtering out of the COVID-19 crisis is set to be quickly followed by an act of bioterrorism. Joining me today to cover these honestly pretty intense topics and more is Robbie Martin. Robbie, who you may remember was my first guest on my first episode a few months ago, is a documentary filmmaker and the co-host of the Always Incredible Media Roots podcast, which has been doing some great work recently on hot-button political issues like QAnon in particular and historical issues of interest like the historical influence of Freemasonry on the United States. Robbie also hosts the Main Politics live stream and previously produced the documentary series A Very Heavy Agenda, which follows the neoconservatives, their agenda, and their ambitions over the decades. So thanks for coming back on Unlimited Hangout, Robbie. Well, thanks for having me, Whitney. I, I, I love to be on your show. All right, awesome. So first, before we get too deep into what we can expect in the coming weeks, it's uh, worth quickly going over the first U.S. presidential debate, which happened earlier this week on Tuesday and has aptly been described even by mainstream media as a total shit show. So, Robbie, did you watch the debate, and what are your thoughts on it, if so? Yes, I, I did watch the debate, and uh, I don't want to break the illusion of your show, but I, I realize as in your intro that I need to I need to speak that way, too, because I always release my podcasts uh, like days after I record them. So it was smart to say that the debate happened earlier this week. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but, but the... Uh, yeah, the, the debate was absolutely ridiculous. I mean, I knew it was going to be ridiculous, Whitney, uh, but I didn't know it was going to be just a shouting match. Um, it, I mean, basically every candidate, or every, I should say, both candidates interrupted each other constantly through the debate. It was pointless. It was worthless. We almost got no substantive policy talk whatsoever from either candidate. Um and it was just a joke. And uh, I really don't I can't say uh, even who won the debate. You know, I don't know if Trump gained anything from the debate, but I don't I don't think either one of them came out looking good. I mean, they both came out looking like total babies um, who can't, you know, just shit silently and wait for the other person to finish talking. So it was it was just kind of gross on that level, I suppose. Yeah, well, I definitely think it, it was a. Um a useful experience for one thing and that is sort of elucidating who and who uh, who is and who isn't a partisan hack right now because the people that are saying definitively Biden won the debate and Trump lost and the people on the other side saying Trump dominated the debate and made Biden look like this or that you know are definitely pandering because even people that have pretty consistently over the past four years been on one side or another were pretty much all like that was awful you know yeah you even had like Scott Adams, right? The Dilbert guy that's like been super pro-Trump, uh, even wrote book books about how like persuasive Trump is or whatever. He was saying like, I think Trump might have lost the election because of how like childish he acted, right? Um, and but then you have people like Tim Tim Pool or whatever being like Trump was dominant and stuff like this, you know. So I think at least <laughs> at the end of the day, it was a useful experience for sort of figuring out, you know, who's trying to honestly and objectively to the best of their ability anyway we all have biases right but objectively you know analyze what's going on and he was just trying to pander for points 
yeah, it's interesting to see some of those people break ranks um, and actually criticize Trump because, you know, it, it just seems as we get closer to the election, the sides just get so much more, you know, dug into their position. Um, so I, I think I actually saw, I want to say I saw Posobiec and uh, Cernovich also saying that they felt Biden was winning the debate, which was surprising, frankly, to see them admitting that. You know, I, I don't believe he won the debate, but to see them feeling that way was surprising. Um, well, the bar was so low for Biden, yeah. though, right? It was like, don't act senile <laughs> for yeah. like more than 10 seconds on live TV. Well, that, that was pretty much it. Well, that was the thing that surprised me is when he started, I was like, actually, this I'm surprised Biden is actually completing full sentences like out of the gates. Like I was like, wow, that's I did not expect him to even be able to do that. So that's how low the bar was for me. Um, and uh, yeah, and it was funny, too, that Chris Wallace, you know, of course, they're ne at this point, they'll never be able to pick a debate moderator who Trump's people will say treated him fairly because Trump oh, sure. the entire time, you know, has even been waging war against Fox News more recently. So it's like even Chris Wallace, you know, is accused now. Even the Trump campaign is accusing him of being like in on a fix, which I mean, I watched the whole thing and like, yeah, Chris Wallace was definitely trying to tell Trump to shut up more. But it was because Trump was interrupting more like I mean, so. I mean, what are you going to do, you know? And, and, the, and Well, the, I think they expected Fox to be more supportive, right? Because that's like yeah. the Republican network. And so, oh, the Republican network's acting like this. Just imagine how CNN would be, you know? I think they were expecting, you know, it's like a home game. So they wanted some sort of boost or something, not, yeah, um, you know, the treatment they got, right? So It was also a little surreal, too, that there was zero... I mean, I saw people sitting in the audience. I, I didn't watch the intro, but someone who, who did told me there was like 50 people in the audience. But, I mean, no audience reaction whatsoever. It, it was strange to watch because usually, I think even the candidates, like I think Trump feeds off of that audience reaction, that laughter, those guffaws. Oh, right. He, 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 you know, there was nothing. So it, it, it was interesting to watch how he played off that no crowd I think crowd it agitated dynamic. him not yeah, having any feedback from the audience. I think he got agitated, yeah, I think from it, that. I think it definitely... I mean, I do think it had some effect on his confidence level. Not that Trump wasn't, you know, strong and aggressive like he normally is, but I feel like he need. It's almost like he needs that audience uh, to to be at his best. I mean, look at the debates where he's, um, you know, insulting Rosie O'Donnell on the opening question of that first <laughs> Republican primary debate. It's like the audience yeah. is like uh is like erupts, you know, and he's just sitting there nodding and sort of smirking. Like he he needs that energy, and without it he's missing something so right. but i don't think it's really going to hurt him ultimately i mean you know it's but i guess we'll just have to see but i i mean i think the i think all three of these debates are going to be a shit show i can't see any of them resulting in any actual con concrete like policy you know platforms well i think because of how this one was uh, how it played out and the the, the reaction post-debate of a lot of people just being like really turned off by it. They're probably going to shake something up um, to try and get people to watch two and three. Otherwise, I think they're going to see uh, viewership really hit a bottom. I think you had a lot of people tune into this first one, but because of how, you know, uh, <laughs> unpleasant it was to watch, right? Yeah. That, you know, the viewership the second time or the third time around, especially, right, uh, you could expect to be lower um, if things continue on, on the path they are on, which seems likely, right? So I don't know. I think it's possible. 
because Wolf Blitzer said this last night. He was saying something like, I think that may be the last presidential debate we'll see between these two. I wonder what Wolf Blitzer knows. Maybe there's, uh, <laughs> you know, Kamala Harris on the way or something like that. Because I've talked about this on, on some past podcasts and some past interviews that um, I think that they're going to roll out um, Kamala at some point anyway. And I think that was always kind of the plan, you know, before the primary even started for the DNC the the big donors for the party had essentially already decided it was going to be Kamala and they went through the whole primary you know and she wasn't popular and had to drop out pretty early on but here she is sort of installed as the VP candidate and there's been a lot of talk if Biden will make it through even Biden himself has said that it's very unlikely he'd serve a full term if elected right you have Kamala Harris saying in a Harris administration stuff like that during interviews um and they have a, a whole protocol set up where if uh, you know if Joe Biden tests positive for coronavirus, that she's going to be the candidate just like that, you know? So, yeah. I mean, they have an easy way in for well, that. Been... And I think if they wanted to improve viewership on the second debate and try and get people fi- stay fixated on this, like, joke of a race, you know, they have to keep people interested and focused on it. I think they'll try and shake it up maybe that way to be like, now it's Kamala versus Trump. So this debate will not be like the first one, right? So that'll be crazy if they, if they pull something like that off. I mean, there was a Rasmussen poll that came out, um, I think three months ago that said I, it was almost 50 percent of the people who responded believed that Biden would not serve out a full first term and definitely not a full second term if he's elected for a second term. Right. So that's a I mean, that's pretty unprecedented. And he would be technically the oldest presidential candidate i believe ever elected to office if he won so it's a very very real possibility that whatever you know if they're planning on doing something like that now i mean pot i i think it's a possibility but i think it's definitely a reality if we're moving forward in terms of actually him getting elected i mean it's not like oh that's a conspiracy theory or that's crazy to speculate that no it's like very likely so i think we need to you know take that possibility really seriously and it's even weirder to think that Kamala Harris is like almost like a blank slate when it comes to foreign policy i mean we know that she's like a zionist that she's favored by apac and things like that right but in general i mean at least we know biden's record we can assess it i mean harris has almost nothing so it's like that's a little more scary to me because, you know, at least, you know, if you're looking at this from the art of war, you need to know your enemy. I don't know what Kamala Harris's positions are. Well, I, mean, I we, think we can guess, you know, just well, pretty sure. much establishment dim stuff in terms of foreign policy. It'd probably be the same stuff that was brought to us by Secretary of State Hillary Clinton and sure. Barack Obama. Right. So, yeah, um, that's at least the starting point. Will it be worse than that? Well, I don't know. <laughs> Remains to be seen. Yeah, I mean that's I guess that's my more more my concern. Something like Russia, Syria, since I've heard her say so little on that, that's what would mainly concern me. I almost feel like Biden is more capable of assessing the pros and cons, you know, of like escalating Cold War 2.0. Uh someone like Harris, I feel like she'd just go along with whatever the think tankers told her to do. Maybe that's, you know, yeah. maybe I'm giving too much well, of a, a pass to what Biden I think there, but isn't Oh, sorry. Well, what I think is not getting enough attention about Kamala Harris is how stoked the Silicon Valley billionaires are on her, which I think people should be be paying a lot more attention to because a lot of the policies 
um, being implemented right now under the guise of coronavirus or whatever are coming from this body of people that is basically a coming together of U.S. intelligence, the military, and Silicon Valley, right? And Eric Schmidt is at the top of all of these efforts, uh, the National Security Commission on Artificial Intelligence, the Defense Innovation Board. Um, Eric Schmidt was also just tasked with reimagining life in the state of New York alongside Bill Gates, a Microsoft, you know, Microsoft co-founder, also a Silicon Valley billionaire. Um, a lot of think tanks that are getting a lot of play in D.C. right now, like New America, for example, funded almost entirely by uh, Silicon Valley billionaires, Eric Schmidt, Reid Hoffman, um, Bill Gates also, you know, a lot of these big, uh, big names, right? And I think it's... Um, interesting that those guys are most stoked on Kamala Harris out of all of the other uh, people in play right now, I guess you could say. So that's, uh, you know, I think that's definitely worth paying some attention to, especially considering a lot of the rollouts were um, that are being sort of played out right now with um, artificial intelligence technologies, making a lot of these uh, migrations to digital based platforms um, you know, whether it's telemedicine or remote work and all this stuff, like making that permanent and also expanding surveillance specifically. Um, and what's interesting is that a lot of these bodies are, um, that I, I mentioned that are sort of these three groups coming together say that the only way we can prevent the next pandemic or the next bio a terror attack, as some are saying, right, is that there needs to be a huge increase in surveillance specifically, which I think is really interesting um, at the end of the day, because there's been this push ever since 9-11 for an increase in surveillance. There's been resistance to it because, oh, you know, civil liberties eventually come up into the issue um, and, you know, they get some pushback from that. But, you know, um, they're definitely using this crisis and suggesting they'll use future crises for the same ends. Uh, to really increase surveillance and take it to, you know, a new level. And it's really these people orchestrating these policies. And they, for some reason, seem to think Kamala is much more accommodating to those plans than, you know, Trump or even Biden. So definitely. I think that makes sense. I mean, you know, everyone talks about um, Biden's role in the crime bill and um, his treatment, you know, of people of color getting harsher sentences. But I think we really need to look at someone like Harris being she's a prosecutor. And, you know, it's like, right, you have to, you know, I got uh, just a personal story really quick. I got a false cancer diagnosis years ago from a doctor who happened to be a surgeon. And that was his primary thing. And, you know, I got a multiple second opinions from other doctors and they're like, look, this doctor He's a surgeon and he sees everything, you know, every problem as a hammer or as a nail and he's a hammer. And if you're a prosecutor, you that's how that's sort of what shapes your worldview. It's like if you're a police officer, you look at the world differently. If you're a prosecutor, you look at the world in the sense of law and order. You know, how do you get things? How do you put pieces in play or in place to actually make someone more easily prosecutable? How do you form a case, you know, a state case against someone who's charged with a crime. I mean, so it's, I, I really do think it's not just this meme of Kamala as a cop. It's that it's, we really need to look at what does that mean for the way she views the world and this post nine 11 world, especially that you're talking about with surveillance. I mean, she was a prosecutor in this climate of, of the post nine 11 world. And as far as I know, she's never said anything about, any of the overreaches in surveillance, uh, f- wiretapping, FISA, nothing like that. I mean, so I think that's really bad news. I mean, I, I again, I think even Biden 
has made some mild criticisms in that direction, you know? Um, so I, I, I think I'm actually more scared of her from, in terms of what you just brought up, because I feel that she will be even more pushed by these forces and these sort of, you know, tech companies and this mass surveillance grid. And she'll, she will be more readily, uh, I, I think she will just go along with it more fluidly than even a Biden presidency would if he was in control. Yeah, uh, I definitely agree. And, you know, I think uh, uh, if you look at what Bill Barr has been doing under Trump as attorney general, I think a lot of those policies are things that would continue if Kamala Harris is elected and put in charge, right? Or maybe even expand. Um, Bill Barr since last year has been running a lot of programs um, in different country, uh, cities in the U.S., like Detroit, um, I think Baltimore, and, and a few others that sort of test out this predictive policing um, and um, pre-crime type stuff that um, in years past, Palantir, you know, the, the Peter Thiel U.S. intelligence contractor that's, that's for data mining, um, and all this stuff, you know, they were piloted, Palantir was pil piloting predictive policing back in um, uh, New Orleans. I think they ended it a few years ago, but it went on for a couple years, right? But now it it's the government that's implementing uh, those types of uh, test runs, I guess you could say. So, um, of course, a lot of that uses uh, technology as a basis. They're using, you know, trying to data mine social media. Bill Barr is trying to get encryption uh, illegalized or, you know, getting the U.S. a, a, per, a government, a permanent, you know, backdoor for law enforcement into um, encrypted communications. I think all of that stuff Kamala Harris would be on board for. So I totally agree um, with you. And I think Peter Thiel is someone who isn't talked about enough in this because he has his fingers in so many bizarre things. I mean, he he bankrolled a guy named Minchus Moldbug who um, is, was sort of this obscure but very influential alt-right figure. Uh, he also, um, you know, he's also responsible for taking down Gawker and funding Hulk Hogan's lawsuits and other lawsuits against Gawker. And uh, he's a strange character right. in all this, and I don't think he gets enough attention. I mean, and also the, his involvement in the intellectual dark web and pushing this guy, Brett Weinstein, or not Brett Weinstein, but his brother Eric Weinstein. Uh, mm hmm I would love to figure out what Peter Thiel's actually, what strings he's pulling right now in terms of what we're seeing in America, you know, materialized well, what, politically. What people don't talk about enough with Peter Thiel, for one thing, he was super involved in the Trump transition team. Yeah. And a lot of people that still hold their positions today in the Trump administration were put there by, by Peter Thiel. Um, and this is important because... Peter Thiel is so powerful now, the way he is now, right? I mean, he's been rich for a long time, but he's especially powerful now because he's the head of Palantir, right? He's the guy that is essentially behind the creation of Palantir. Palantir was initially funded with money from him, but then it was just um, added on to by NQTEL, by the CIA. He lobbied the CIA specifically to fund this company and for the first, I think, three years of its existence, Palantir's only client was the CIA. And the CIA was intimately involved in developing uh, its product development and, you know, its product pipeline and the things it can do, the capabilities it has. I mean, all tailor-made by the CIA, essentially. And so this, and now, you know, Palantir is a contractor for all 17 U.S. intelligence agencies and other parts of the U.S. government. I think they also just recently inked a deal with the military um, or with the U.S. Army specifically and things like that. I mean, Peter Thiel uh, in controlling Palantir 
has a lot of, of power with the national security state, right? And so, though, like I mentioned earlier, you have these bodies that, that are directing a lot of policy behind the scenes. That's the military intelligence in Silicon Valley. But essentially, as Peter Thiel shows, a lot of those three distinct bodies are essentially fusing into one thing where you have the national security state and Silicon Valley coming together. And they're essentially functioning as like the real government now. I mean, these are the people implementing... Um, a lot of the policies that we're seeing go live because of coronavirus. Um, a lot of the responses to things, I mean, they've become so intimately involved in um, in in life to, um, you know, a greater degree than ever. And, you know, they're pushing for that to be uh, for something that's going to continue on for a long time. And, you know, that leaves people like Peter Thiel and people like Eric Schmidt, like with way too much power. Jeff Bezos in the mix also. You know, all of these guys that founded a relatively small handful of companies in Silicon Valley, right? Amazon, Microsoft, Google, Palantir, you know, uh, they are responsible for contracting to a huge number of government agencies and the government depends on them for so much, right? So it's definitely, um, you know, people like Peter Thiel don't get examined enough, but I think honestly it's because a lot of people don't want to tangle with him, especially after what he did to Gawker. Uh, Like you said, I mean, he essentially took them out. Yeah. I mean, they and people probably don't remember why that was. It was because Gawker actually outed um, him as Mm -hmm. being gay years before that. And he was so enraged by that that he, you know, did the did a long con uh, form of revenge against him. And it worked. Um, And I think I was one of the first times people realized that a billionaire could just destroy a media outlet if they wanted to. You know, really at any time if they really wanted to focus on it and do that. And that's what happened. I mean, I don't I'm not in love with Gawker. I think Gawker, really, you know, did a lot of dumb stuff over the years. But um, that was a, a particular I think it was a, a learning moment for people, a teachable moment. Mm-hmm. Uh, so people understand how messed up this country is that oligarchs can just basically shut down any media outlet they do not like. Yeah. Well, they're also, you know, the Silicon Valley billionaires are also behind the destruction of independent media right now for the, through censorship, exactly. right? So, yeah. you know, they're, they come together behind these foundations and charitable whatevers that they create, you know, to create all these anti-fake news watchdogs like NewsGuard being one of them, right? And, you know, several others uh, that are about clamping down on the, the free flow of, sure. of information. And, you know, NewsGuard is part of Microsoft's... Uh, protecting or defending democracy program, <laughs> right? So, I mean, it's another thing that comes from Silicon Valley. I mean, it's just so crazy um, yeah. that the, the amount of influence these people are, are wielding in, in the U.S. right now. But what's um, what I want to jump to really quick is, um, since we're talking about Peter Thiel, um, Peter Thiel is one of the main investors in this company that I, I've talked about um, uh, in detail over the past year or so because it's related, um, you know, I first got interested in it because of the Epstein case, because Jeffrey Epstein, along with Peter Thiel, are invest, are, are in, were, in, well, in Epstein's case, were, you know, uh, investors in this company, right? Carbine 911, which is, uh, you know, uh, basically being promoted as the, the next generation 911 call system in the United States to eliminate the decentralized, localized nature of 911 and make one federal 911 calling system. And, you know, this next generation 911 has like these lobbying groups uh, called like NG 911. And there's a couple others that have been lobbying Congress for years. And like there's legislation already written to to slide this through. 
right? Um, and they have very close ties to Carbine 911. And of course, you have Peter Thiel being an investor. His ties to the national security state are to, you know, worth considering here. It, it was uh, the chairman of the board until relatively recently was Ehud Barak, uh, Epstein Powell, and former Israeli prime minister uh, created by Unit 8200, which is Israel's NSA, um, you know, graduates from that. Um, had some other Epstein associates on its board of directors like Nicole Yunkerman, uh, and, and people like that. So definitely an interesting company. And the reason I want to bring them up right now is because uh, I think it was just earlier this week, uh, there was a major hack, uh, not just of a huge uh, hospital network in the US, but on the same day, there was also a 911 outage in 14 different states all at the same time, which is pretty odd because, wow. you know, a lot of people are saying now that because look how fragile our 911 system is, now we need something different. And here comes Carbon 911 that's been sitting there since last year to uh, to come in and, and save the day, so to speak. That's uh, that's creepy. I, I know very much about this company, um, but I can say with certainty that the psychological climate we're in right now with the amount of fear people are experiencing, people think that major cities are burning down everywhere from riots. Uh, I could see, you know, a consolidated 911 service going offline, uh, being a really convenient sort of um, thing to happen for people to just get absolutely hysterical and feel like the sky is falling and, and, and that the world is actually collapsing. I mean, it's kind of a scary thing to think about that, you know, to have just 911 go offline um, and people, you know, terrified in their homes, hoarding their guns, waiting for, you know, a mob to come hunt them down in their neighborhood. I mean, you mentioned Scott Adams earlier. Uh, he was he was believing that if Biden won, that Republicans would be hunted down in their homes and like murdered. Um, so I, I could see that being a very scary scenario uh, if if you know that ever were to happen, uh, we were when we're in an even more hysterical climate than we're in now. So uh, that just thought popped into my mind, and that's very frightening to me. Well, I think the climate will get more hysterical probably in the months to come. I mean, we'll see what happens. But what I think is interesting here is that um, with this outage that happened the other day, apparently earlier in the same day, Microsoft had a major outage, including uh, where it's headquartered in Washington State, that entire uh, city had a major outage and apparently Microsoft's um, Azure service was completely interrupted and they claimed, um, you know, they tried to back away from saying it was them at all, right? Because so many, um, you know, computer systems in the US, obviously they run Windows or depend on Microsoft for some way. This is why, you know, I mean, these are monopolies essentially. So this is showing, you know, like the, just the weakness of a monopoly in one sense. But what is also really freaking crazy to me is that the government agency in charge of securing um, critical cyber infrastructure in the US, which is a CISA or CISA under DHS, is currently led by this guy named Chris Krebs. And before Chris Krebs was in this position at DHS, he was one of Microsoft's top, he was actually Microsoft's top executive for Microsoft US government relations, right? So don't you think that's kind of like a conflict of, of like interest there? Like, especially when we're talking about, um, you know, how Silicon Valley and the national security state, the deep state, if you want to call it that, I don't know, the intelligence community, right, have essentially like fused, right? And you have a guy from that world now in charge of overseeing 
um, these critical infrastructures. And I, you know, and I, it was uh, another thing about that too, is that as I wrote in my Cyber Reason series earlier this year, at the end, uh, the last one, um, the third part of that series, I talked about how a lot of the seeding for the narrative last year that there was going to be major attacks on U.S. critical infrastructure by Iran and, you know, U.S. adversary states was coming straight up from Microsoft. And now you have one of Microsoft's top guys in charge of protecting that same stuff, right? A little weird. Yeah, a little weird to say the least. Um, right. Yeah, I mean, Microsoft is an interesting company because i mean of course because of bill gates <laughs> role right now but he's not even part of microsoft anymore but yet he's moved on to being this the de facto you know world's number one expert of uh, of of bioterror or or a pandemic and that's and that's it's very strange how that transition took place i mean i guess if we cycled back a couple of years ago we could have been like yeah if there's a pandemic Bill Gates is probably going to be the number one guy, but it's just weird to see it actually like happening in real time. I mean, I know this has been going on for months already, Whitney, and you've talked about this, but um, right. I just still can't. It still can't wrap my head around it, and it's it's odd, you know. I mean, I don't trust the dude. He seems, you know, I, I think it was actually Joe Rogan who said, "How can you trust someone who wears like that Mister Rogers sweater uh, all the time?" Yeah, I mean, it's, hiding it's creepy. something. Does he wear? What does he wear in summer? Yeah, <laughs> actually, he was he wearing doing? that in what the is, middle of summer, right? The, yeah, I guess because maybe he has a PR person that makes it. <laughs> you know, he's like, "You look less like Montgomery Burns if you wear this." Maybe yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I don't. I don't really know um, exactly what the deal was there, but um, you know, I've seen enough interviews of Gates this year where even if he's in Mister Rogers attire, you know, he can't really contain the weird craziness that he sort of exudes. And um, as you were talking about just a second ago, right, um, Bill Gates is also the great prophesizer, or I'm sure he will be uh, labeled as such, of the coming bioterror attack, um, whenever that will reveal itself. Uh, there's a lot of really interesting quotes that Bill Gates has said over the years, and what's uh, worth pointing out is that Bill Gates, right as he was doing all of these warnings about the next imminent pandemic that a lot of mainstream media outlets have focused on in, in recent months as proof that he predicted the pandemic or whatever, almost uh, ever since 2017, side by side those predictions, whatever you want to call them, um, he's also predicting how bioterror is going to be, uh, you know, commonplace in the future and is going to kill millions and millions and millions of people. And there's this one speech that he gave in at the beginning of 2017 that I found really interesting um, in terms of why such an attack would be convenient for some people in government. And that would be that he, he talks about how we essentially need to bring together health security and international security and the war on bioterrorism and the war on terrorism essentially have to come together and become one battle. And he also talks about um, how the U.S. military needs to be more focused on bioterrorism and biodefense and bioweapons, things like this, um, and has definitely been very strong in his opinions about bioterrorism and what really got my attention uh, earlier this year is that Bill Gates in an interview, I think it was in May, it may have been in April, um, it was Stephen Colbert and he essentially said, you know, Stephen Colbert says, well, Bill Gates, you predicted the pandemic, so what are you predicting next? You know, so we can make sure to listen to you this time, right? That's essentially how like Colbert framed the question and Bill Gates was like, well, 
bioterrorism is going to murder lots of people now, you know? I mean, that's, and then he sort of like laughs nervously in the middle, like really uncomfortable. Like I was saying earlier, he's had a lot of interviews where like he'll have like weird reactions to statements people make or like say weird things that, and then he like laughs really nervously about it. And it's hard not to cringe when you watch those moments. Like when he said final solution <laughs> yeah. and stuff like that in interviews, it's like, dude, you're, you might be a little out of touch. Well, his 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 affect and the way that his him, the way he emotes. I mean, even at the beginning of the pandemic, like he would just be like so, he would act like super smiley and like he was like really happy about what was and going giggling. on. It was, it was a very odd. Um, and his wife also giggles about yeah, this shit. <laughs> yeah, and I guess what really worries me, Whitney, is it's like whoever. Let's just say there are people out there who want to unleash something that would basically be like a bioterror pandemic of some kind. They've already seen what the reaction will be to something like COVID-19. They they already see oh, what yeah. what the crazy lockdowns would be like, how it will basically stop the world's economy for a time period. So there's more incentive now, whoever whatever group, if you want to believe it will be someone like Al-Qaeda, which I don't believe. I'm I'm much more, you know, prone to believing it'll be someone within a government or intelligence agency, but whoever right. it will be, this is just a wonderful sort of test run and if you want to call it that to see how all these things will, you know, how all these systems will react to such an event. So, it's kind of it's really actually that Hey, are you there? You cut out. Or, no. yeah, I'm, I'm still sorry. here. Can you hear me? The last little, yeah, the last little bit cut out. It's all right. Oh, I was saying um, that if, you know, if the next attack, and I hate to sound like a neocon, I'm not trying to fear monger, but if the next attack is some kind of bioterror attack that unleashes a virus or some kind of weapon, biological weapon um, that kills more people than COVID-19, I mean, it's it's sort of like uh, all you know whoever whoever might want to do that could study what's just happened and uh, and sort of be able to game it out and and that's oh, what yeah. scares me now um, because you know we already know that Operation Dark Winter was setting us up you know trying to sort of play game out this idea of a terror pandemic with smallpox and that it would shut down the entire world. Um, that it would basically almost create civil war in this country. The hospitals would be overloaded. Um, mm -hmm. And uh, that's, you know, I, my only reason for not thinking that that's what the elites want is that it will basically freeze the economy as we know it. Like it'll, it will shut down the economy. So my thinking is that if someone does want to do this, it's, it's a crazy group you know, somewhere in the deep state, somewhere in some intelligence network that's that's truly insane because to want to unleash a global pandemic like smallpox would be one of the most insane things anyone could possibly do. I mean, yeah, I mean, it's definitely insane. But there are I mean, uh, there's actually a group of elites like at the World Economic Forum, like Klaus Schwab, right, are pretty open about the fact that the more crises like this there are, the more it facilitates what they are openly calling a great reset where 
the world economy has to be remade and they have a lot of justifications that sound nice they throw out. Oh, we'll make everything more sustainable and we'll fight climate change and we'll make things more convenient by using AI more and all of this stuff, you know, but do we really, really want to trust those people? Um, you know, with remaking everything and like, why do they get to do it? And why do they want to do it? And why do they think that, you know, this crisis is actually good? Like that's a little messed up. Um, you know, I mean, there's definitely actors that are essentially saying that these types of crises are opportunities that need to be seized upon. Uh, we've definitely seen government seize upon them for some purposes, like expanding uh, surveillance, um, you know, deepening uh, the power of the executive or sort of taking, you know, doing overreaches on civil liberties and what have you. But um, What's interesting about this whole bioterror thing though, right, is that as you mentioned, right, and as we've talked about before, Dark Winter was essentially a, a dry run for, you know, the 2001 anthrax attacks. And of course the 2001 anthrax attacks initially blamed as Dark Winter predicted, right, on Iraq working with Al Qaeda, which of course was not happening. And it was eventually traced back to the US government somehow. And there was a huge cover up that took place and they pinned it on a guy that almost, you know, pretty much every expert that's trustworthy that there is says there's no way he could have done it alone. And he probably, it probably wasn't even him. And he was set up essentially. And the FBI never had to prove their case in court and all of this stuff, right? So there was no accountability for the people who did the 2001 anthrax attacks, but obviously that didn't go as planned for them the first time. But those same people that were involved in those events are still, uh, in government or in positions of power and are intimately involved in what's going on right now with coronavirus, uh, specifically companies like Emergent Biosolutions, which, you know, was Bioport back in 2001, was like the huge economic winner from the 2001 anthrax attacks. You have people that wrote Dark Winter um, being in, in prominent positions in academia, like Thomas Inglesby at the Johns Hopkins Center for Health Security right now. You have Tara O'Toole, one of the other main creators of Dark Winter being at the CIA right now, uh, was previously undersecretary for science and technology at DHS, where she started implementing a lot of stuff that we can get into uh, later if we have time about preparing for anthrax attacks um, and things like that, that are still ongoing right now. So, um, you know, it's, it's definitely interesting to take a look at what these people are doing and saying, because last year, a lot of the people tied up with, with these people, right? Thomas Inglesby, for example, led event 201 um, with the World Economic Forum, talking about, you know, this coronavirus uh, pandemic flu coming around, uh, sort of simulating that last October, I believe. You also had Robert Cadlick at HHS, who's a very shady character that we've, you know, talked about before, doing Crimson Contagion, also simulating pandemic influenza last year and things like that. So it's interesting to see what these groups are saying now, right? So last Thursday, this, uh, what's known as the Bipartisan Commission on Biodefense, right? It used to be the Blue Ribbon Study Panel on Biodefense that was set up in 2014 by none other than Robert Cadlick while he was lobbying uh, for a bunch of shady military and intelligence contractors, um, you know, basically uh, had this virtual meeting and you had people like Joe Lieberman there, right? And you have Tom Ridge, former head of DHS, the first head of DHS, right? Um, essentially talking about, well, they had this meeting, it was called the Biological Event Horizon, No Return or Total Resilience, 
was the, was the name of this thing. Wow. And it was reported <laughs> on in only one outlet I could find, which is Homeland Security Today, right? Um, which is just a, it just fawns over national security state propaganda. But anyway, it's interesting to read what they have to say. Um, they talk about the bio threat after COVID-19, engineered pathogens, and more zoonotic outbreaks. So this is what oh, these guys Jesus. are predicting. Yeah. Um, and one of them uh, was talking about how gene editing and all this stuff um, is opening this can of worms and there's going to be all these new viruses and bacteria that have been genetically manipulated through CRISPR gene editing, uh, which, by the way, is largely funded by, you know, people like Bill Gates or creepy, uh, you know, uh, creepy Harvard scientists and geneticists are very involved with CRISPR too, like George Church, who was tied to Epstein and a lot of these other guys. I mean, the people that are funding a lot of CRISPR stuff, I mean, that's not random terror groups, right? You know, out in a cave in the middle of nowhere <laughs> buying lab equipment online, like these people like to say, right? Um, you know, it's these, uh, you know, either groups in academia or other institutions a lot of times are funded by the NIH or other parts of the U.S. government or the military directly or the intelligence community. Um, or billionaires, right, um, that are very involved in a lot of this gene editing, uh, advancing this stuff. But anyway, they're essentially saying, you know, all of that, sh uh, all of that stuff is going to be increasingly likely um, and that we need to increase surveillance and um, develop new, tra like keep travel bans in place forever, essentially, and all this stuff they're sort of um, gaming out. But um, if, you, if, if, if it's cool with you, there's actually a lot of articles like that that have come out recently. Um, there's another one. This one's from DW, Coronavirus Experts Warn of Bioterrorism After Pandemic, uh, talking about this group called the Council of Europe, which is sort of like a sort of like a Cold War era group in Europe founded originally by Winston Churchill and some other people uh, saying not that long ago that there's going to be new terror attacks using viruses or bacteria that they've learned from coronavirus. And they can see how easily, just like you were saying, how easily this could be used by people that want to create that sort of crisis. They're saying that, you know, these terror groups and whatever um, are going to are going to do that. And there's been actually a huge jump in this recently, ever since that ricin letter was sent out to the yeah. White House. I think that was on September 19th. Uh, there's been a, a lot of weird things going on lately. So really quick, uh, the ricin letter was... Um, September 19th, but then just a couple days later, September 22nd in Massachusetts, um, a the FBI's terrorism squad investigates white powder mailed to a hospital. Then September 23rd, uh, hoax, anthrax hoax letter sent to Board of Elections in uh, Pennsylvania, I believe. Then there was one in Buffalo, New York, September 28th, also sent to Board of Elections. And in Las Vegas, um also another one sent to the board of elections and it's interesting that it's like election headquarters being targeted in hospitals which a lot of this um sort of seeding of narratives leading up to how the election is going to be so chaotic as we're being told right um a lot of the alleged targets for those attacks are hospitals and the election system so it's interesting to see this random i guess you could say jump maybe in, in hoax letters and at the same time you had cnn uh, just yesterday, or um, I'm sorry, September 29th, right? Just before the debate, ran a piece called The Most Important National Security Question Trump and Biden Need to Address Before This First Debate. And it's specifically talking about the uh, quote, 
the potential future threat posed by bioengineered pathogens, end quote. So kind of interesting um, that that is being put front and center just in the past couple of weeks. And there was also some pieces on military.com talking about the next major battlefield threat. Um, another one in, in the UK talking about the next pandemic could be genetically engineered, experts warn. That was from two weeks ago. Um, and there's been several other ones over the, over the course of the year um, that are definitely a little eyebrow raising, especially when um, uh, you look at the people these types of articles are citing. Because there's actually, if you search for them, there's actually a lot that, you know, even uh, just since the coronavirus crisis started, have been talking about bioterror in general, but they essentially cite the same group of people who are really all interconnected with the dark winter crowd, really um, saying that there's going to be an imminent bioterror attack this fall. Um, definitely really, Jesus. <laughs> really unnerving in, in a lot of ways. Yeah. Um, yeah. Especially when you throw in, Oh, sorry, go ahead. No, I mean, I was just going to say uh, the, you brought up this, um, the, these, these fears about CRISPR and, uh, genetically modified um, viruses or pathogens and a lot of that stuff I mean there was definitely an attempt to make this appear that this was sort of a Chinese government uh, thing you know that the WHO was supposedly controlled by China that you know China allows genetic modification beyond um, some of these you know what other Western countries allow so all these little pieces are were seemingly in place to make it seem like China was largely responsible for not just this, but other potential, you know, uh, viruses or pandemics that would sort of be of this sort of like genetically modified zoonotic nature. So it's interesting to me that that narrative trying to blame, you know, the Chinese government for engineering this didn't really stick. And the people who are still trying to push that are sort of sloppily, you know, trying to push it along like this whistleblower Dr. Lin Meng Yang from um, the Hong Kong University, for example, right. who never worked in the Wuhan uh, lab, who's claiming that she's a whistleblower, who knows that they worked on, you know, COVID-19, uh, things like that. Um, so that's that's interesting to me that that propaganda was attempted to be, you know, thrown out there to link this all to China. But as you've laid out in many of your pieces and you're, you're laying out right now, I mean, this is involves a lot of people from Western governments it involves all these oligarchs and very rich people across the world who are funding these things. So you can't blame it on China. I mean, you would have to right. look, you'd have to look at the whole picture. And also Whitney, what I think we also need to look at is if someone, let's just go to the scenario here. Let's say there is a group of elites, uh, people who are powerful, who want to unleash a global pandemic for their own benefit after COVID-19. If that's the case, my mind still goes back to smallpox because it would almost be too obvious if people were already vaccinated with an experimental vaccine for like a brand new virus. But with something like smallpox, the vaccine's been around since, you know, my mom's generation. So in theory, if someone insane wanted to unleash a smallpox pandemic, they could already be pre-vaccinated and in theory, they could be safe. You know, their friends and family could be safe from it while the whole rest of the world is suffering from this and unprepared from it. So that's something that my mind keeps going back to is that if that if it were to happen and somebody was to deliberately release it, they would still go back to something that already has a vaccine in play. 
Now, I don't know if I'm just being, you know, thinking about this too logically because there could be, you know, other factors here I'm missing. But for some reason, that's where I'm going with it. I mean, I do think it's possible that we could be facing a future of some kind of genetically engineered, even accidentally released pandemic. Um, but but I think it's more likely we would actually see something that's already like on record, like smallpox. But maybe I'm wrong about that. I mean, but that's that's for some reason that's where my thinking is is going. Well, I think it's um, I think there's a couple different ways it could go because what we have to do, and I'd like to go over this in a little bit, uh, is basically what a lot of these national security officials in the U.S. and also in Israel, interestingly enough, have been saying about what this who will be behind this imminent bioterror attack, allegedly imminent bioterror attack and how it will play out right and essentially who will be to blame because just like it you know happened before the 2001 anthrax attacks the narrative of who was going to be blamed for it regardless of who actually commits it was set up well in advance right and so that same narrative for this event has similarly also been set up but what's interesting is that uh, when in the places where that narrative is being, uh, you know, its foundation is being established, they're also talking a lot about anthrax and a lot about smallpox. And, you know, there's existing vaccines uh, for both of those. They're both manufactured by the same company that was, I would argue, intimately tied up in the 2001 anthrax attacks, Emergent Biosolutions, which is also very involved in the manufacture of most of the COVID-19 vaccine candidates in the United States. Obviously, none of them have been approved yet, but um, Johnson & Johnson, Novavax, and there's uh, two others, the AstraZeneca vaccine also, are all going to be produced by Emergent Biosolutions. The person in charge of quality control, uh, by the way, at that facility where all of this is going to be produced is not even, has no background in chemistry or any sort of hard science. He's actually a high-ranking former military intelligence official whose history is leading uh, military intelligence teams throughout Iraq and Afghanistan and around the world and is a specialist in uh, or special analyst for military intelligence for North Korea and Iran. So what is he doing in charge of um, quality control at the Emergent Biosolutions uh, factory that's going to be involved in a lot of this? Uh, it seems a little weird that they choose someone like that. Um, and I, you know, I mainly say it's weird because of Emergent Biosolutions' horrible track record on safety with the anthrax vaccine and a lot of their other products. Yeah. Uh, the fact that Emergent Biosolutions over the years has um, knowingly sold unsafe, untested, or faulty products to the United States, supposedly uh, for both biodefense and for other, um, you know, other products as well. But they, they mostly deal with biodefense. They have um, a lot of very close ties, really a revolving door um, with the Pentagon and HHS and a lot of other uh, prominent government agencies that would normally be involved in their oversight to an extent. Um, you know, they're a very shady company. So it's definitely eyebrow raising to see them bring someone like that on relatively recently to oversee quality control at their factory that's going to be such a crucial response or a crucial part of the U.S. government response to coronavirus um, and the militarization of the whole vaccination issue in the United States through Operation Warp Speed and other things, you know, also eyebrow raising. But uh, really quick, I wanted to touch on this article that I think people have forgotten about entirely and I would like them to remember because I think it's a very um, key part of the discussion we're having. It's from Politico in April, April 23rd, it was published. It's called Officials Probe the Threat of a Coronavirus Bioweapon. Okay, so it's talking about uh, not claims 
that coronavirus itself is a bioweapon. It's saying that those claims prompted the Pentagon and intelligence community to consider how someone could weaponize coronavirus as a bioweapon in the future, right? Um, so I'll read some quotes from this. <laughs> so it starts off saying, the Pentagon and the intelligence community are more forcefully investigating the possibility that adversaries could use the novel coronavirus as a bioweapon, according to defense and intelligence officials. Um, and what they say next is the intelligence community has begun gaming out the potential for bad actors to weaponize the virus, uh, particularly against high level targets. And the Defense Department has recently shifted its focus toward monitoring the possibility more closely. Uh, that's a little weird because it goes on to say it's not clear what led to the increased focus on the risks of COVID-19 weaponization with one defense official saying it's a lower risk concern and that most questions revolved around the virus's origins, not about how it could be weaponized in the future. So um, that's a little shady. It just doesn't I even would... make sense. How, how would you easily, I mean, if terrorists can do that, why wouldn't they have done that already with like the just regular influenza or other viruses? I mean, viruses are like, some of the hardest to deal with and man like manage substances in a lab that you can imagine. It doesn't, it just doesn't even make logical sense to me. Right. But remember too, before the 2001 anthrax attacks, there were justifications for these, uh, classified projects that were going on at Battelle, right. Um, to genetically yeah. engineer, a, a more intense form of, of anthrax. And they were, that was based on reports in the media from the New York times specifically, I believe that Russia, uh, you know, was going, was allegedly genetically engineering uh, anthrax that was resistant to the vaccine. This is at the same time that Emergent Biosolution, uh, Biosolutions was having problems with their anthrax vaccine and there was all this stuff going on um, about that at the time that of course the 2001 anthrax attacks were miraculously solved. But before that, a lot of these shady things that are of interest to people that you know have looked into the 2001 anthrax attacks, they were initially justified by a similar way. Concerns that this could be uh, this particular pathogen or whatever could be weaponized in the future, right? So it's interesting to see the Pentagon, um, of course, the U.S. military being the source for the anthrax and the 2001 anthrax attacks, right, um, is now saying something very similar to what they said, uh, you know, back before 2001 that ended up justifying those classified programs to genetically engineer, uh, you know, a more virulent strain of that particular, you know, bioweapon, bioterror agent in question. Definitely uh, a little unsettling. Yeah, definitely unsettling. And it makes me wonder... I mean, there's so many different directions, you know, if a, if a terrible group wanted to do something like this that they could go in. I mean, you have on one hand, you brought up ricin earlier, and that makes me think that, you know, if someone wanted to really fear monger and amp up the fear levels right now, they could say that an Antifa group is making ricin. I mean, anyone in theory, you know, you, you could buy castor beans on the internet uh, you know, uh, this was in Breaking Bad. If anyone's seen that show, that it's it's not that difficult if you know chemistry to produce ricin. It's something that they could easily claim some kind of rogue, you know, but group with no budget could do. Anthrax requires, you know, more sophistication. Um, it would require probably some involvement with the government. So when you go sort of higher up the list of sophisticated pathogens or viruses. 
it, it's hard. It gets harder and harder to construct a narrative that was some, you know, Al Qaeda or rogue ragtag terrorist group. Um, so that's what makes me think if it's something like, you know, if they do, if there is something like a COVID night wep COVID nineteen, a weaponized form, a bioweapon form, or even some other kind of zoonotic genetically modified virus, they'll have to blame it on some kind of state actor, and that's, I mean, that's ultimately scarier because, you know, that'll right. that'll lead to. If it's a state actor like China, that's just greasing the skids for World War Three. If it's an actor like totally. Antifa or BLM or Al Qaeda, then that just means domestic crackdowns on a level that you know will get far worse than what we've seen in the post 9/11 world. So either outcome is bad. Um, right. But but then the, on the other hand, it makes me also think, you know, anthrax traditionally. It was never, you know, back in the day, it wasn't, people didn't think that a terror, a terrorist was going to send anthrax to the mail. It was more looked at as someone's going to use this like in the same way that um, like a bombing raid would take place. Anthrax is, is useful for the military because its spores survive in the air for a long time. Like if you drop them, for example, from an airplane and uh, that was traditionally what was, you know, why anthrax was so favored. Uh, by these government's groups, you know, any 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 government uh, that that's was working with anthrax is because it could be deployed, like in theory, from an airplane. So I feel like we've moved we've moved beyond that point in the sense that I feel like we're we're facing something that's much more. If it happens, it'll be much more elaborate, and you know, it'll be something, perhaps in the air. But you know, again, it could be something just on a small scale, like a ricin attack. Uh, that can be just used to fearmonger and start surveilling or rounding up people who are in Antifa, for example, or even a far right group like the Proud Boys. I know I don't know if you want to jump to that now. Maybe I'm moving <laughs> there too early. Yeah, but. no, but it's actually related to where I wanted to go next, actually, because the narrative they're setting about who's going to be responsible, it's actually really similar to Dark Winter, but updated for all the stuff you just brought up, right? Yeah. So it's literally about these uh, domestic extremist groups in in the US and Western Europe partnering with a nation state to uh, unleash this attack. Um, can you guess what that nation state is? It's actually like, honestly, the narrative is really insane. Um, so I, I can't wait to <laughs> Russia? Uh, get your thoughts on it. No, it's it's Iran. Mm. Um, yeah, this is wild. So basically, the narrative as it's been set up, uh, since the beginning of this year for this alleged coming bioterror attack, you know, I'm talking about more than 30 articles, essentially all pointing to this, right? Um, it's going to be far right extremists, white supremacists, they're saying, um, in the US and Europe, and they're going to partner with either ISIS, Al Qaeda or Iran is what <laughs> the narrative is. And I know that sounds really laughable because it is really freaking laughable. But you have to remember, too, that in a time of, of crisis and extreme fear, people don't question that stuff as much. I mean, the idea that Saddam Hussein was working with Al Qaeda, for example, to allegedly do the 2001 anthrax attacks, right? I mean, there was that had no basis in reality. It was literally made up, but a lot of people believed it because, you know, you had Brian Ross from ABC News talking about bentonite and the anthrax, and it only could have come from Iraq, even though there was no bentonite in the anthrax, in, in the anthrax but, 
you know, it was leaked to him by like Paul Wolfowitz or someone else around uh, at that level of the Department of Defense at the time saying that's who was responsible and that's what was found, even though that isn't what happened, right? And, um, you know, they just ran with it. So, you know, if they're also practicing extreme censorship of people like you and me and other independent media outlets out there, you know, maybe they can get away with it if they, you know, create an echo chamber. I don't know, but it's definitely worth going over some of the things uh, that we've been seeing with this in particular. So um, really quick, uh, at the beginning of the, uh, not that long ago, um, I think it was in May, uh, this is Politico again, they talked about how the, the CIA and the intelligence community every year they released the worldwide threat assessment um, but they didn't this year. It was canceled because of the uh, because allegedly, according to Politico, intelligence leaders were worried their comments would aggravate Trump. I don't really buy that, uh, <laughs> but you know that was their justification. So Politico went and interviewed a bunch of spooks and ex spooks to create their own domestic threat assessment, and they published it in May. And I think a lot of people should take the time to go read this because a lot of it has come true. It's quite creepy. They even talk about crazy wildfire fires in California coming um, and all this stuff before, you know, uh, just a little weird. But anyway, the first most immediate threat they bring up is what they call the globalization of white supremacy. And they say, quote, if you ask national security officials about the top near-term terrorism threat on their radar, they almost universally point to the rising problem of white nationalist violence and the insidious ways that group that formerly existed locally have been knitting themselves together into a global web. What? That's a little weird. Um, especially when you consider that in the United States specifically, a lot of these white supremacist groups have ties to the state or they're infiltrated by the FBI to a huge degree, right? Or they're in, you know, or law enforcement on, on some other level. So it's just yeah. a little, um, well, there's so many know, people I mean, need to keep that in mind. <laughs> yeah. There's been so many examples. I mean, of people, of people like the proud boys and these other far right groups, like literally collaborating with the police, um, you know, that's just right. even on a low, lower level. So yeah, it's that's pretty hard to swallow. I mean, the the stats, the actual numbers just don't back that up. I mean, we know that there are far right groups that are more established in other countries, like in Greece, like the Golden Dawn and things like that. But like right, right, right. But this is different because yeah. what they're saying for here is that the movement here, the white supremacist movement in the U.S., they say is quote clearly adapting the playbook used by the Islamic State in 2014. What? Right? That, that is yeah. so ridiculous. Yeah, I mean, I I think that's only going to work on, on super lefty people who just laugh Maybe, up, but know? it's not just Politico saying this. This is yeah. the Jerusalem Post from June. Huh. They talk about the, uh, this is another article, it's titled, Far-Right Obsession with Bioterror Could Lead to Work with Al-Qaeda, Iran. That the subtitle so coronavirus has spiked interest in bioweapons among adherents of far-right ideologies well, right I, I wonder what actual real world examples they would be citing i have not heard well, of one I'll, I'll i'll give it to you yeah yeah please <laughs> I, it's, I, I, it's this so is the first nuts. time i'm hearing that any far-right white supremacist group has I mean, maybe maybe something during the McTimothy McVeigh era. I remember hearing something about no, no, no. that. This at is 90, all you know, coming but... from the shadiest freaking shit. I mean, it's literally it's made up. I mean, if you read what Gotta they're be. saying in these official reports and stuff, it's clearly made up. But anyway, um, 
this is the Jerusalem Post. They're citing specifically a report that was produced by um, the International Institute for Counterterrorism at um, this Israeli university, which is essentially super tied up with Israeli's military intelligence apparatus. Um, IDC um, Erzliya, right? I mean, they are super involved with a lot of the Unit 8200 stuff. They're super involved with... Um, just the counterterrorism policies of Israel in general, the training of law enforcement abroad by, um, you know, ex-Israeli military people or military police or what have you. Um, and uh, it's probably the number one recruit where, you know, Mossad draws a lot of their recruits from, right? I mean, it's pretty much, you go there, to, you go to that university to be part of Israel's national security state, period. Um, so anyway, this is a report authored by one guy there, but this is how the Jerusalem Post uh, reports it in the first sentence. The obsession of the radical right in the U.S. and Europe with bioterrorism could lead it to partner with Iran and jihadists what? like Al-Qaeda, says a new report exclusively obtained by the Jerusalem Post. All right, so uh, it's pretty crazy. If you actually read the report, basically what this guy does, um, I mean, it's obvious that the reasoning behind this narrative is just was just invented because it fits a narrative it, it, it just you know it's like spinning something out of whole cloth that serves political ends just like iraq and uh al-qaeda doing anthrax together for example you know justifying well, an invasion of iraq we can talk about what the you know justifications for this would be but obviously if they're partnering with iran allegedly you know that's going to be used to justify military action against iran something we know that Israel specifically wants the U.S. to do and also, you know, has a lot of support from people like Mike Pompeo, my, uh, Mike Pence, and of course, you know, just the Trump orbit in general being very, you know, hawkish with respect to Iran. But this report says, the coronavirus wave has spiked the far right and other terrorists' interest in bioweapons, as well as assisted them in their recruitment. Um, and their reason for justifying this, they say, uh, the reason they're making all these conclusions that white supremacists in the U.S. are going to work with Iran, right? A heightened volume of graphics, posters, and memes circulating online in far-right channels in recent weeks clearly indicates the eagerness of some to use biological what weapons as a means fuck? of terror. That is absolutely yeah. absurd. That and is it's all Telegram sounds channels. Sounds like a poor parody so, article from The Onion. <laughs> it should be but this is this is what's crazy is that no one no one's been paying attention to this but if you actually like look at all of the bioterror reports from the past year the people in this whole like robert cadlick tara o'toole dark winter circle also saying the same crap and then you have you know Mossad university <laughs> like in israel putting this stuff out um, and uh, at the same time, you have this ricin letters go out, right? And all these hoax letters, you also have random reports circulating in the BBC and in US media, I don't know if you saw this, claiming that now Iran is going to uh, unleash uh, major, or take revenge for the Soleimani killing, which makes no sense either, right? Yeah, they um, would have already taken revenge. I mean, they chose not to respond. That happened in January. <laughs> It happened in January. Yeah. Why are they going to wait until October to do something about it? They were just like, now we're mad. Ten months oh, later. Well, and they expect people to believe that, right? Yeah. So, I mean, they're setting up like a motive for it and being like, oh, well, the U.S. is reimposing sanctions. They also had a report right after that one about the Soleimani killing. 
uh, Iran vows crushing response to the U.S.'s bullying sanctions and stuff like that. I mean, they're setting up. It, it looks like they're setting something up for Iran, right? Um, it does. But I just and they have been with the cyber terror stuff. They say like cyber reason and all these other simulations said was going to happen to the in Microsoft also predicting this that you know Iran's going to attack the U.S. power grid and the U.S. critical infrastructure uh, on or after the election. Yeah. Interesting. I just wanted to comment on the, the the whole angle that you're bringing up here that just not just removing Iran from the equation because that's just such an absurd premise that a white supremacist organization would work with Iran. Uh, you you got to read some of the quotes from this article. I mean, but, I can go through some more of them if you want. Cause sure, it's just, yeah, it's but insane. I, I I wanted to say that um, it's I think we you know I I'm on the, I'm sort of uh, a pretty staunch leftist and I and I see a lot of lefties and liberals especially getting caught up in this idea that all these sort of white supremacist groups in this country all these the street violence by these whites you know white supremacist far-right groups is all because of trump and that you know it's because trump has courted them and dog whistled to them and etc but you know i i do think we need to start looking at this from perhaps a different angle which is who else is benefiting from the inflation and the amplification of all these groups. Because, I mean, if the federal government really wanted to stop them, you know, and, and I'm sure there are people in the federal government who aren't, you know, pro Proud Boys, then they probably could, you know, and to see them flourishing to the extent that they have, I think we need to start looking at this from another angle, which is who is this benefiting other than, you know, the media who wants to bash Trump and Trump? Because you know, it, it, a lot of people like I see people like Michael Tracy and others sort of examining this from the media angle, like the media is hyperbolic. They just want to use anything they can to tar Trump to make him look like a white supremacist. But I'm a little more concerned that this is these pieces are being set up for something like a Tim McVeigh style, you know, event where yeah. it will be blamed on not necessarily a far right group, but also a far left group. I mean, we have enough fear mongering happening for the last few months and last several years that the climate is ripe for it to be blamed on either type of group. Um, and that's totally. and I, I think that is ultimately more worrisome. And also, you know, as a as a lefty, I probably get in trouble for saying this, but Antifa, I mean, you do have to wonder why were so many suspicious intelligence connected people neoliberal sketchy journalists hyping up antifa to the degree that they were i mean you have people like robert right. evans who has a sketchy past working with u.s government you have people like shane bauer these the alleged iranian hiker you know who, oh god who yeah. iran accused of being a I CIA had blissfully agent. forgotten that he existed for yeah. months and you now have, i remember he's you a have person caroline again. orr Jeez. <laughs> who is all over the ass of Bill Crystal promoting constantly all his new think tanks and the Alliance for Securing Democracy. I mean, honestly, Jesus. Yeah. I always link back the first blow up of promoting Antifa in the U.S. media with the Alliance for Securing Democracy. Um, and it, so that's in my mind where it goes back to. And, mm -hmm. I, and I, I mean, there's a lot of people in Antifa who are legitimately, you know, real people. But. I mean, I think just like any other group, I mean, that, that, that operates in the way that they do, it's also ripe for infiltration. It's also ripe for COINTELPRO. Totally. 
And I think it totally is. I think course. people totally forget all about COINTELPRO when we're talking about what's going on in the U.S. right now with these groups. If you don't think the U.S. government has infiltrated both sides, at least the both sides that are promoted on TV, sure. right? Meaning Antifa and the Proud Boys and groups that like get a lot of lip service on cable news. Like those are obviously infiltrated or they wouldn't be paying attention to them, period. I mean, that's my sure. opinion. And also, you, it just, you just have to wonder, it's like, why are some of these neoliberal journalists so favorable to Antifa when like they've never been favorable to like any far left causes before? I mean, it's just like, why are they jumping on promoting Antifa? I, it, I mean, so the whole thing, yeah, we need to zoom out from it and look at this. What if Trump, you know, if he wins or doesn't this election, um, what's, what, what is this climate going to result in? And I think that's, you know, we need to we need to think back to the Clinton era that it was before 9-11. This country was sort of being fear mongered into believing that the far right was going to be a source of terrorist attacks in the United States after the Oklahoma City bombing. And that's that was the direction uh, that we were sort of going in um, as a as a country. And, uh, you know, and, and, and they could really maybe easily portray that because people were very upset at Waco. A lot of militia groups were very uh, outrage at what the U.S. government did at Ruby Ridge. So a lot of those pieces were fitting for people at the time. But now, I mean, we're we're in a much more volatile climate now. I mean, so many right. bad things could be done and blamed on one of these groups. And it would be fairly easy to do. I mean, even the groups themselves try to do their own false flags. I mean, I don't know if you remember when the BLM protests first started in Oakland again, the second wave of them, a boogaloo a uh, uh, group, uh, a guy came down from Santa Cruz and and just shot in cold blood an Oakland Homeland Security security guard and drove away. And for weeks, it was like that was Antifa who did that. Antifa's executing police, but it was a Boogaloo boy who did it. But, you know, we don't have any evidence that the guy was a fed necessarily, but he was an active duty U.S. Air Force sergeant. You know, yeah. I, so I don't know what the hell happened there, but you know, we have to question all these things, even just at the lowest levels. These people themselves could be doing their own false flag. So that's that's something to worry about. But then when you include the government angle and Cointelpro, mm -hmm. it gets a lot crazier. Oh, yeah. I mean, it's definitely crazy in terms of what I think, you know, promoting Antifa has uh, is about. I think a lot of it has to do with making them seem like, you know, um, to freak out people on the right enough that they're willing to promote and support. Uh, policies that will eventually be turned on them if indeed a so-called so far-right group is blamed for a future bioterror attack or something like that. Obviously, the people that would be uh, targeted or surveilled or rounded up in that case would be like, you know, right-leaning militias, uh, you know, militia-supporting groups and, you know, um, groups normally affiliated with the right that right now are calling for the federalization of police uh, more military on the streets to crack down on Antifa rioting and stuff like that, you know? Um, yeah. I think a lot of those people pushing for that don't realize that that, you know, same authoritarian police state, you know, policy could easily be turned on any protest regardless of what political flavor it has, right? That ultimately, if you're asking for military to be on the streets, they will stay there and then your little militia is going to have, you know, it's not going to go well for you guys, especially if, you know, those types of groups or gun owners or people with a particular ideology or whatever, um, extremist or not, you know, start being uh, more intensely scrutinized or 
or surveilled or whatever if there's you know an event down down the pipeline i mean it's definitely i think very convenient for that and of course you know you have the um these same uh white supremacist white nationalist whatever groups um, you know, also being used to fearmonger people on the opposite side of the political uh, political spectrum to sort of, you know, um, get support from leftists for policies to crack down and track these groups. But ultimately, when you increase surveillance for those groups, you're increasing it for everyone too, right? Um, so, you know, it's definitely, I would argue, um, you know, a lot of the same solutions are being offered by both sides here and it's all about ginning up the partisan divide to get both sides to agree to government policies that are ultimately used on everyone that they normally wouldn't support if we were talking about the big picture right but if you're making it uh you know this is going to save you from the boogeyman we've created um you know people on both sides of the aisle are willing to go uh to to new heights i guess yeah it's you know it's really um it's really unfortunate because, as we've discussed, Whitney, I mean, even though some of these far-right militia groups back in the 90s and early 2000s probably still hated leftists uh, to an over-the-top degree, they they seemed to hate the federal government more and on, a, on an intrinsic level understood that the federal government was not there to help them and not there to save them or protect them. So you have now is this unfortunate scenario where – a lot of these people who are on the streets, especially on the right, think that they're, you know, think that law enforcement is their friend. And maybe at times they are. Maybe some of these law enforcement people, you know, will be giving them high fives, uh, you know, thanking them at times. But at the end of all this, uh, you know, we need, only need to go back to the historical precedent of the brown shirts. And I know that it's not, you know, I'm not trying to make a Trump Hitler comparison here, but I think what's a more apt comparison is that in the night of the long knives, Hitler, you know, he for a very long time found his brown shirts very convenient for his cause, but it, ultimately he realized that they were a threat to his own power. So he went out and killed a bunch of them and ordered a bunch of them killed and rounded up. So for any of these people to think that Trump or anybody who's in charge of the federal government is going to be like, you know, yeah, good job. You know, you're taking care of Antifa for us. You know, you're our friends. I mean, they'd have to be utterly naive at the end of whatever this is going to be. Those people are going to be, you know, cracked down on as well. You know, to to, for, so to see yeah. them cosplaying in the streets with their, um, you know, assault rifles and bulletproof yeah. vests. That's acting so like, going to happen to QAnon. What yeah. you just laid out. Yeah, <laughs> I, I mean, mean, it's all are... it's all going to come Ooh. back and bite them in the ass to think that they're just the leftists are going to be rounded up. I mean, honestly, it's more likely that they're going to be rounded up because they're the ones with totally. guns and the federal yes. government all has them on a list, man. You think that the yeah, government and they're going to the be FBI sitting there waiting them? for the no. plan to be enacted. <laughs> I mean, it's almost, I almost want to laugh at it, but it's just, um, it's sick on another level too. So I'm refraining <laughs> from laughing, but I mean, it's just, uh, you know, there's a, a total level of absurdity there, but, um, speaking of absurdity, I just want to uh, go through a couple quotes uh, in this article because this isn't the only article saying this. I really want to stress that. Like, I, I really feel like, you know, I talked about the Politico one earlier. This is the Jerusalem Post. There's several others that talk about Iran and white supremacists using bioterror. And it's really weird to see that sort of, you know, almost like lockstep narrative about an attack that hasn't even materialized already being set up. And if you, you know follow what was going on before 9-11, what they were saying about, you know, Al-Qaeda and all this stuff, and before the anthrax attacks, and Iraq and Al-Qaeda working together for bioterror, you know, I mean, 
it, it's definitely worth paying attention to, I would argue. But anyway, uh, really quick. So I talked about earlier how they're uh, these heightened volume of graphics, posters, and memes uh, is, is proof, right, that the far right is quote unquote obsessed with bioterror and is going to partner with Iran that, you know, has no real, has never been accused of having a biological weapons program, a nuclear program. Sure, they've been accused of that, right? By Israel all the time, but this seems a little, you know, you, if there was something there, when we hear Mike Pompeo talking about it constantly, the bio threat from Iran, it's interesting to see it being brought up this way. But anyway, um, so well, is, those far right to, channels. Me, oh, I just sorry. Go comment ahead. really quick. It is really bizarre because I mean, we know that Israel, in general, their society leans pretty right. Um, you yeah. know. It's it's not technically accurate to call them white supremacists, but it's it's bizarre. They're ethno fascists. A lot yeah, of them so are. It's just, I mean, that's Likud is ethno fascist. Yeah. I mean, the whole anti left thing, like the idea that the left, like leftists, are enemies. Like, I mean, that largely comes from Israel. I mean, my sister was there. Um, I'm not saying that's why we have. It I think here that's now, within but, Israeli society, but also yeah. a lot of the um, you know Israeli politicians have also been behind a lot of this promotion that white supremacy is a huge threat and anti-Semitism is a huge threat in situations where anti-Semitism was not actually a threat. Like take the Jeremy Corbyn yeah. uh, case, for instance, and things like that. So I mean, abroad. The type of political messaging that the, uh, the Israeli government and Israel lobbies engage in is different, but in terms of Israel domestically, I mean, leftists are bad. I mean, it's like you're left. It's like, I think I actually remember um, watching uh, one of Abby's videos from there that they, you know, were talking to just some guy on the street, and he was like, he said he identified as a leftist, and he and someone was like, isn't that an insult here? And he was like, yeah, yeah, totally. Yeah, they know they there's there's video footage of at these um you know pro Zionist protests. They're not even saying like death to Palestinians. Uh, sometimes they're more aggr they actually like will chant death to the leftists like at these at these chants. So they understand yeah. how you know much of a threat you know after the Rachel Corey incident and things like that. I, mm. I think they know that um, left activists are the ones that stick in their craw the most and and probably generate the most negative press of apartheid for the most part. I mean it's not the right. You know who's who's digging up uh, right. horrific well, they don't crime. Get it, but the thing is, though, there's so little, there's such little coverage of incidents like that in Israel. Like they don't get yeah. picked up by Israeli media, and very few media outlets outside of Israel cover that, unless they're like dedicated to reporting on the Israel-Palestine conflict. It's right? true. Yeah, I mean, even when Abby went on Joe Rogan and briefly talked about what we're talking about now, they yeah, he got there's a lot of ignorance about it. He got yeah. hundreds mm -hmm. of letters from uh, the Israeli lobbying group Stand with us. <laughs> demanding yeah, yeah. that Abby be banned from his show, you know? That's I so mean, crazy. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's definitely a thing that happens. But returning to the, <laughs> the topic at hand, because I really want to get into this because it's so crazy to me. So these far-right channels this report is talking about are all on Telegram. It's citing, it cites one Telegram channel in particular that's called Eco-Fascist Central is the name of the channel. Um, it's public, so literally anyone can post on it. Right. And so who, who the heck knows who these people are? Um, and allegedly there was a single post circulating in there, but it's like, you know, a focal point of this report. You can totally tell this thing was so cherry picked. Um, but it talks about uh, cough on your local transit system, uh, telling members to cough on door handles and people. And this is proof that they're going to release a bioterror agent with Iran. You know, it doesn't make any sense, but this is the stuff they're citing, trying to build this case for it. It's like telegram posts like this in, in memes or something of 
uh, people coughing and whatever, okay? But what's crazier is that the other, like, half of the report isn't about stuff that's happened recently. It's about that uh, Norway Norwegian white supremacist shooter from years ago in 2011, uh, Andre Breivik, right? That killed, like, 70-plus people in Norway uh, years ago. It cites his manifesto as, as proof about possible cooperation with Iran. And this is really crazy because Breivik... After he was arrested and, and the shooting and all this stuff happened and the trial went through, it came out that he is a huge Zionist, like extremely pro-Israel and like love Zionism. It's, it's pretty wild. Um, so it's interesting to see him being cited here as justification for it. But it cites his 2011 manifesto saying that um, this white supremacist, whatever group he made up, uh, should quote, consider working with the enemies of the EU-US hegemony such as Iran and Al-Qaeda. Oh my god, right? it sounds like, it almost sounds like a, someone like a QAnon type person is posting that stuff there to just like scare the crap out of yeah, people and just let Jerusalem them use it for propaganda. Post. And uh, really quick, the guy that wrote this report, the Jerusalem Post is citing top Israeli official involved in planning NATO workshops on terrorism, member of the Atlantic Forum of Israel. That's sort of like uh, Israel's involvement in the Atlantic Council. He's involved with the Washington Institute for Near East Policy, WINEP, a major part of the U.S.-Israel lobby. It's a spinoff from APAC. Uh, WINEP is also that speaker, uh, that video that's gone around uh, in recent years of that, that guy talking about how there needs to be a false flag to generate, to create war with Iran. That was a WinUp guy, a WinUp fellow talking. Um, that video going around. He's also um, he he is uh, also part of this group called the Proteus Management Group, or PMG, a think tank that focuses on future scenarios for the U.S. War College, right? <laughs> Which is also where Robert Cadlick used to teach, and a bunch of the and, and Dark Winter co-author Randy Larson used to teach, and one of the guys I think was most likely involved in the anthrax attacks, Bill Patrick. Um, who's the former Fort Detrick guy. He also taught there. So this guy's there too. He's definitely not like uh, an, an unconnected guy, right? So it's definitely interesting to see this cartoonish level of, you know, um, analysis going on, essentially saying that this is what's going to happen, you know? Uh, but anyway, he's citing Brevik too, not just as saying that there's going to be cooperation with Iran, right? Uh, but he he adds um, that Brivik also mentioned releasing a briefcase full of high grade anthrax, um, <laughs> and that and then he says, even though Brivik was writing in 2011, he set a 2020 deadline after which his group would consider itself free to explore all WMD options, including bioterrorism. It's a little weird. It is a little weird. weird. I mean, the the Brevica, the, that attack itself, I, I have to admit, is a little weird, not just because of how many people he killed. The shooting part of it wasn't as weird, but a lot of people forget that he unleashed a very high-grade explosion before that. I mean, for a right. supposed lone wolf terrorist, I mean, his bomb that he set off, allegedly set off, was more powerful than, like, any bombing done by, like, Al-Qaeda in, like, the last 15 years. So it's it's kind of fascinating just for that. Like, how did this one guy manage to build such a powerful bomb, um, you know, compared to other terrorists over the years? It's it's a little curious. Yeah, no, for sure. And definitely, uh, this guy also talks about, um, he, Brevik, in, in this 
like manifest or whatever talks a lot about anthrax but he doesn't really talk that much about other stuff but this guy is emphasizing in connection with what brevik's saying uh ricin and also uh concentrated liquid nicotine a little weird but he also they specifically emphasize the use of aerosol anthrax here in this report talking about releasing it into a building's ventilation system so that's what this guy um this creepy guy at the jerusalem post is saying it's also worth pointing out that um, Sheldon Adelson's owned Israeli media outlet, uh, Israel Hayam, uh, is also making similar claims. So in an article from earlier this year, pandemic should be a wake up call to prepare for bioterrorism. Uh, the writer here is citing uh, Robert Cadlick's, uh, you know, uh, bipartisan commission on biodefense, the one that's warning about an imminent bioterror thing after coronavirus just recently. Um, he, he says here, the current pandemic may have whetted their appetite, talking about extremists, terrorists, right? Uh, terrorist appetite for biological disaster as a path to anarchy and chaos, which could destabilize their target enemies. Then he goes on to say, whether we are speaking of Iran's revolutionaries hastening the return of the hidden imam, uh, the Islamic State and Al-Qaeda Salafists, or neo-Nazis in Europe or America, we must think like they do to prevent the next potential threat, right? So it's the same players again, Al-Qaeda, Iran, and neo-Nazis, wife supremacist. It's, it's, it's pretty weird. Um, then we have just recently um, why all these uh, rice and, uh, you know, the rice and letter and these hoax things and all of that, right, coming out, um, as I mentioned earlier in the podcast, um, we also have this recent leaked DHS report coming out saying that white supremacists are the deadliest domestic terror threat facing the U.S. This came out earlier in September, just a, a few weeks ago. Um, it talks about specifically, here we go, Lo quote, lone offenders and small cells of individuals motivated by a diverse array of social, ideological, and personal factors will pose the primary terrorist threat to the United States. Among these groups, we assess that white supremacist extremists who are increasingly who are increasingly networking with like-minded persons abroad will pose the most persistent and lethal threat. So this is just in the past couple weeks. And they say, we judge that white supremacist extremists will remain the most persistent and lethal threat in the homeland through 2021. <laughs> interesting that they're putting a date on it. Yeah, uh, that the ends then of all times. It's a little little suspect if you yeah. ask me i mean i think we have to be really on guard um not necessarily jump to conclusions but if there's any supposedly bioterror attack released by a left or right-wing extremists in the next few months uh we have to be very very uh suspicious of it and 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 look beyond the totally. headlines um it's well, in, 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 the, in the interest of time really quick i just want to point out that even before the coronavirus crisis there was an article in february from this guy named charles fattest who's a retired cia operative um his bio on the hill where this article he wrote was published says he took the first cia team into iraq in advance of the 2003 invasion and retired in 2008 as head of the cia's counterterrorism unit tracking wmds okay so that's the guy that wrote this article um, it's called Bioterror, Why We Aren't Ready, right? Right before uh, the lockdowns and all that stuff started. He, he oh. asked at the beginning, if this, uh, if this meaning the coronavirus uh, 
crisis as it was just starting, right? Were a bioweapons attack, would we, would we be ready? And then the next question he asks immediately after that, if, for example, Iran, in retaliation for recent American actions, like the killing of General Qasem Soleimani, were to unleash a biological attack, would we be prepared? The answer is a resounding no. That's so dumb. I mean, isn't it? Well, I mean, of course it's dumb. <laughs> but what freaks me out is that he's saying stop. He's saying Iran there. Iran has no biological weapons program. I mean, if they did, wouldn't we have heard that from like John Bolton for like the last like 20 years nonstop? You know, John Bolton invented yeah. Cuba having a biological weapons program and got shit on for it when he was like uh, the representative at the UN under Bush, right? And uh, why would he, if he invented it for Cuba, why not do it for Iran? You know, there's never, that's never come up. But now this guy is also saying in a separate part of this article, uh, amongst nation states, Russia, China, North Korea, and Iran are believed to have biological weapons programs. I mean, this is freaky that we're seeing this happen. And, 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 you know, uh, like I said earlier, I don't have time to go through all of them today because we're almost out of time, right? But... There have just been a ton of articles since March talking about bioterror is a real threat. And after COVID-19, the next pandemic is going to be bioterrorism. Like I said earlier, even Bill Gates in an interview earlier this year said that was going to happen. You have a lot of people tied up with the dark winter crowd saying that some sort of thing is going to go down. Uh, It's definitely worth paying attention to because, in my opinion, a lot of the stuff that they're trying to push for is solutions um, a, a great increase in, in surveillance beyond anything we've seen pushed through so far. I think because a lot of the fear that people were feeling earlier in the year has died down and now a lot of people are questioning lockdowns. Some states like Florida are, you know, reopening and all of this stuff, right? Um, if I'm, They won't be able to push things any farther unless another shoe drops in a big way, in my opinion. Well, so, I agree with um, you there, for sure. Yeah. I mean, the... Th- I'm, for some reason, my mind is uh, is going in this weird direction right now of thinking. I mean, I've heard Bill Gates talking, you know, for years and years about the Spanish flu. And I have to admit, I probably learned about most of that from him from like a, a speech or a talk he did probably a few years ago. And what's interesting about that is, I mean, that it would be a much worse form of uh, bioweapon. Let's say if someone wanted to weaponize the Spanish flu it would be far worse than the smallpox, uh, than a smallpox release because, um, I mean, we already seen the havoc that it caused, uh, in, in on the globe when it, when it happened, um, in the early, uh, 19th, uh, 20th century. So that's, that would be a strange one because there probably is some kind of experimental vaccine developed from it, but that's not like on the market because it's simply not be, you know, it doesn't exist anymore. But when you actually look at the history of how, they apparently sequenced the DNA for it. It's it is kind of frightening to think that they didn't actually sequence the DNA and figure out what the Spanish flu was until like 1989. I mean, to think that that's how long, you know, it would take for if Spanish flu was a naturally released thing, that's how long it took for a scientist to actually figure out what the hell it was. Um, you know, I, I don't even know why I just brought that up, but I guess my thinking is that still, if someone were to do something like this. And on top of COVID-19, there would have to be some kind of already existing vaccine for it or else all these crazy elites, you know, who might be behind this would have to be hiding in bunkers, you know, somewhere. 
which I feel like they wouldn't be willing to do, but maybe they are. I mean, maybe, you know, we already know Piero Midiar well, has food right. bunkers in Hawaii. You know, all these people have been preparing <laughs> right. for an apocalypse forever. They have nuclear fallout shelters, so maybe they also have per pandemic shelters. I don't know. Well, you know, what's interesting is that Robert Cadlick's office and the Strategic National Stockpile at HHS, they've been stocking up a lot of anthrax vaccines just in the past couple of months and also smallpox vaccines and have also last year poured a lot of money into new experimental anthrax treatments and also are really gunning for the approval of Emergent Biosolutions new anthrax vaccine. The old one is Biothrax. The new one is called Newthrax, N-U-Thrax. Um, and they're trying to get that approved, but they've already bought millions of doses for it. And what's interesting about Newthrax is that while Biothrax is supposed to be preventative, Newthrax is supposed to be used in the event that there is a anthrax uh, bioterror attack specifically. So uh, that's what it's that's what it's about. And it's it's a little weird. Also, um, Emergent Biosolutions involved with the ricin vaccine, and they also have a monopoly over the smallpox vaccine in the U.S. So regardless of what type of thing. Uh, that happens with emergent biosolutions. I mean, they're gonna, they're probably gonna be uh, winning <laughs> at some point. And also in recent uh, weeks, including on one was released on September 11th, um, re market report saying that uh, the anthrax vaccine market poised for explosive growth through next year. Seems a little Jesus. weird. Um, yeah, and also uh, really quick because I, I wanted I wanted to get through this before before we wrap up. But there have also been a series of simulations about bioterror attacks uh, that I think are worth uh, considering. Uh, one was earlier this year in July, I believe, um, and it was DHS, the U.S. Coast Guard, and uh, the EPA all uh, focusing on addressing the wide area release of a biological uh, agent such as anthrax in use in uh, used uh, non-pathogenic anthrax surrogates in its studies and field demonstrations. Um, a little weird to have that going on um, at, at, you know, this time, because a lot of other simulations and things like that for this year were canceled because of the coronavirus crisis. That one, um, oddly enough, was not. Um, also, there was one not that long ago, an anthrax attack simulation at Liberty University of all places that involved uh, uh, Virginia State Police and the Virginia State Government, uh, and also Liberty University being sort of tied up with uh, Trump's pal Jerry Falwell Jr., who's been in trouble lately, if I remember <laughs> correctly. But they were also doing um, a pretty intensive anthrax uh, bioterror simulations. Then uh, another one, um, while Crimson Contagion and Robert Cadlick's uh, office were doing those pandemic flu simulations last year with a lot of these same entities I'm about to go over, they were also holding anthrax attack simulations. Um, one on, uh, there were a couple regional ones, one on the West Coast that happened last April. Uh, there was one f in last June in the Connecticut, Massachusetts area that was about an anthrax release specifically. There's another one that I think is probably the most interesting of all that happened last July. Um, it was called Capital Fortitude was the name of the exercise. It was a region-wide exercise in Maryland, Northern Virginia, and Washington, D.C., all about how to respond to an anthrax attack in distributing a, a hypothetical aerosolized anthrax attack is what they chose to do. And what's interesting is that you had to be, you had to work for the U.S. government to participate. 
Um, what it said is that the drill, while the, the exercise aimed to include members of the public who wanted to participate, uh, the drill did not include people who didn't work for a government agency. Isn't huh. that a weird sentence to include? That is Just, a weird sentence. Like they wanted residents to be included, but no, but like it was all people that work for the government. And the people that were in, that's you know that were interviewed in this report said, "Oh, I chose to participate because it's preparing residents for what may happen." But no, like non-government people were there, so that definitely seems a little, a little weird. Just like most of the things we've been talking about today. <laughs> yeah, do you just mind if I mention really quickly something else from the debate that I think is pretty relevant to oh, what we're no, talking about? Oh no, go for it. Go for it. So. There was a there was an interchange. I mean, there was a lot of COVID-19 talk, obviously, last night and, you know, uh, Trump trying as hard as he could to deflect any responsibility. The, the mask interchange was interesting because he just kept sort of going back and forth. And Trump took a very non-committal position on that, which I thought was kind of interesting because it's almost like his base is probably so anti-mask at this point that they will, you know, they'll almost get mad at him if mm -hmm. he took like a pro-mask position, which would have maybe been the politically more savvy thing for him to do, but he, he didn't. But what was more interesting is Biden sort of was like, you're not going to have the, you know, the vaccine ready or, or no, it was Chris Wallace telling him that his own, somebody in the CDC said the vaccine wasn't going to be ready till June. And Trump was like, nope, they told me it's going to be ready by January. And Chris Wallace was like, well, why are they saying it's going to be ready by June? And Trump is like, look, we have, uh, you know, the military is prepared to deliver 200,000 uh, vaccines a day we already have them all ready to do it and it's like whoa dude you you have so you, so who's actually advising you on this is someone like robert cadlick do you think uh you know is he part of the advisors that's actually setting this program up to get the yeah, military to mandatory totally possible because he's in charge of hhs's entire coronavirus response and people yeah. like really need to pay attention to robert cadlick because he is like a really important guy here uh, very shady, very suspect history. Immediately after 9-11, put right under Paul Wolfowitz, the Department of Defense, between then and when the anthrax attacks happened. Remember, U.S. military source of the anthrax. A lot of other, uh, just, you know, he he came up with the term Dark Winter. I mean, that is named for a thing he says, right? He was super involved with the people that wrote the Dark Winter exercise his whole career. He's been tied up with spooks and also the entire creation of the strategic national stockpile that he conveniently now controls in this position. And a lot of other aspects of U.S. biodefense policy, he's essentially, he's he wrote those laws over the past 20, you know, 20 years. I mean, he, he's a, a huge player here that almost no one knows. And it's, um, you know... I really hope more people pay attention to him, but he definitely um, is playing a role in this to a significant to significant degree, and that's why I think it's really important that people pay attention to what his office is doing and what you know Barda, uh, which is under uh, Cadillac's oversight, right, um, is involved. Uh, you know, the type of things they're funding is really important, right? And a lot, so they're you know recently been giving a lot of money to Emergent Biosolutions. They're involved in Operation Warp Speed and all of this stuff, which is a lot of this, you know, militarized involvement uh, here. And really under Cadillac's watch, HHS has become uh, much closer to DARPA in the U.S. military than before and have, you know, uh, taken steps to really uh, coordinate their operations more. That happened way before this coronavirus crisis came on the scene. So this is something that, you know, Cadillac is down for. 
right? Uh, you know, he, he used to lobby for DARPA. He used to lobby for emergent biosolutions too. Um, definitely involved in a, in a lot of stuff. But I definitely think the militarized rhetoric about the whole vaccine thing is creepy when you also take into consideration some of the other stuff we've been talking about. This coming uh, event, whatever it is, where there's going to be some sort of extreme renewed focus, not on foreign terrorism this time, but on domestic terrorism and how that's going to be played out and how there's going to be some sort of military aspect for that in the homeland. And you're also having that going on why the military is also involved in vaccine distribution it just seems like the military is being you know thrown around as as the solution to a lot of things that are going on right now and that cannot end well yeah it's not going to end well and it's also going to be i think a really rude awakening for trump supporters if trump wins a second term which i think honestly he's likely to win um, that that Trump could really easily turn around here and be like, look, you can't you will not be able to freely operate in this country without this vaccine. It might not be mandatory, so to speak, quote unquote, mandatory, but it might actually be severely limit your ability to do things uh, yeah, moving I think forward. That's how it's going to be. And mm-hmm. for the military to be involved should really be chilling to anybody who is an anti-masker who it was anti the lockdowns, which I am much more sympathetic to that position. I think all those people should be looking at this and, and what Trump said in that debate and actually look at the stories that this wasn't just a slip up or Trump misspoke at the debate. This is an actual program that's been being talked about right. by his government that the military will be deploying that. That's never happened before to my knowledge. I mean, the polio vaccine, the original smallpox vaccine that was given to like my mom's generation that was done all through, you know, some kind of, I mean, it was government back, but it was done through medical doctors. I mean, can you imagine soldiers walking around suburban neighborhoods, setting up tents to give you vaccines? I mean, it's, that's, that's straight up the medical martial law stuff that Corbett talks about. Totally. And, and Bill Gates, right? Like I was saying earlier, a few years ago, he gave that speech saying we need to bring together you know, homeland security and health security. And that's essentially what we're seeing, right? I mean, consider the fact too that Bill Gates has like a huge amount of control over global health policy through his quote unquote philanthropy, right? And that's one of his positions that he thinks needs to happen. And he thinks the military, he this is a this is in the Wall Street Journal, Bill Gates talking about how the military needs to play a bigger role in biodefense and health security and whatever, right? So I think it's no coincidence we're seeing it play out this way. But the question is, is that what really needs to happen? Because ultimately, if you're combining uh, the war on terror with quote unquote health security, you are making the battlefield not these places abroad anymore. You're making it domestic. You're also making it the human body. Like, I feel like that's going to be used to push for so much, uh, so many invasive things going forward. You know what I mean? Like, oh, we have to know... Um, you know, what you're touching and who you're around yeah. and, and all this stuff Contact to prevent the tracing. next attack. Yeah, but I think it's going to go even beyond that because if you look at other things the military has been funding and promoting as ways to quote unquote prevent the next pandemic from DARPA and stuff, they're talking about using nanotechnology in the human body and constant sensors put in the human body to tell you you are sick before you even show symptoms, creating sort of this uh, predictive healthcare aspect that's, that's not unlike predictive policing. <laughs> and I think that the state, the national security state, will end up using predictive policing, whether it's, you know, for law enforcement or for healthcare or whatever, they'll end up using it for the same ends, right? And I feel like it's not getting 
enough uh, enough attention at all. No. And I mean, unfortunately, we already I mean, this is my thinking on this is that we almost don't need it to get to the level of nanotechnology because phones are so invasive uh, so, yeah but so i think much. they're taking it to another level yeah i mean i wouldn't it doesn't surprise me but i mean just imagine what they can already do with just the contact tracing apps and tying your own medical data to your ability to travel whether you have a vaccine or not i mean all that totally. stuff is already happening it's seems actually worse in the uk and australia and some of these other western countries than it does here right now but it could get just as bad you know here really quickly it's this appearance that Trump is anti-establishment. I think that's making people not see this path forward. I mean, if in any other scenario, a lot of people I think that are more, you know, uh, sort of deep politics like we are would be looking at this scenario now and being like, of course, this is going to move us closer into some kind of fascist situation after 9/11. Mm -hmm. I mean, of course, that's what's going to happen. But yet, we're just distracted by. You know this this left-right divide that Trump is anti-deep state. So I think a lot of people are not keeping their eye on the ball here, and that's why I think what you're doing is so important. I mean, you you're continually trying to get people to understand that this doesn't it doesn't matter that Trump's president it doesn't matter what his rhetoric is. This is all this is all coming to fruition. All these pieces are being put in place, and this track is being set up, and it's it's real. So we need to be very concerned about it. Right. Well, thanks for that. Um, I definitely agree that more, you know, I hope more people start, ha you know, hammering this, the, these points home for people while, you know, there's still a platform uh, for <laughs> people like you yeah. and me, you know, because I feel like the, the censorship hammer is just waiting to crack down before the election because of alleged state sponsored disinformation or whatever. You, you can just tell they're just waiting to, <laughs> to, to let that loose. But, um, sure. uh, I, I'm about out of time here, but I really appreciate you, uh, you know, hanging, hanging out for a little bit, Robbie, talking about all this important stuff. And I hope, I know our, you know, our listeners appreciate it. So, um, thanks a lot. Do you have any concluding thoughts? Um, no, other than just keep up the great work. Um, what you're doing is really important, and yeah, uh, we just let's just keep you know keep uh, remembering that we are living in the post 9/11 world, and like you said, um, there does seem to be this very real possibility that the other shoe could drop at any time, and it doesn't really look like COVID-19 necessarily is that other shoe yet. So I'm, it seems to be like the test run yeah, for so, for a lot of it, yeah, so, which is I'm, unsettling to see the least, very considering its effects, right? So yeah. we'll see what happens with that other shoe dropping. Uh, I mean, hopefully it's uh, later rather than sooner, but, you know, um, you know, the important thing now is to try and, I guess you could say, inoculate <laughs> people with the... The narrative they're setting up in advance, right? Um, yes. And you know, just paying attention to the history of what the, these same people have gotten away with the past, and you know, no accountability. So why wouldn't they do it again? And why wouldn't they do it again on a bigger scale, right? Well, uh, anyway, Robbie, thanks a lot uh, again for coming on, and thanks to all our listeners. Tune in next time for the next episode of Unlimited Hangout. Mm -hmm.